Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Fred Applebaum. Fred is a physician, scientist, and administrator. He's an executive vice president at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle and a professor who has devoted his career to the research and treatment of patients with leukemias, lymphomas, and other cancers of the blood. He's a pioneer in the field of bone marrow transplantation and was the lead author of a 1978 paper in the journal Blood that heralded the first successful engraftment of autologous bone marrow in patients with malignant lymphoma. Fred didn't do this work all alone. He was inspired by someone, and he worked with others on a team. One of the key influences was E. Donnell Thomas. Don Thomas won the Nobel Prize in 1990 for the discoveries that paved the way for bone marrow transplantation to become a common and life-saving procedure for people with blood malignancies and more. Thomas died in 2012. Fred thought there was a story here. Who was Don Thomas? What did he do? Why does it matter? And what did it mean for the future of medicine? This story needed to be told in book-length form or else risk being lost to the dustbin of history. Fred decided to take the story into his own hands. He's the author of a new book titled Living Medicine, Don Thomas, Marrow Transplantation and the Cell Therapy Revolution, published by Mayo Clinic Press. It's excellent. I had a chance to read an advanced copy and I wrote a jacket blurb which called it a tour de force of medical science history. This book is easy to read and hard to put down. Anyone who wants to know about where breakthroughs come from and how medicine will change over the next 20 years should read it. Listeners should also know that I have channeled a lot of my philanthropic energy toward the Fred Hutch over the past five years, so I'm well aware of the story and fond of the institution. But I learned a lot from this book and came away believing strongly that listeners of this show, pioneers of biomedical innovation today, would benefit from reading this book. In this conversation, Fred discuss- discusses a bit of what's in the book, the process of researching and writing it, and a few things he learned along the way. Before we get started, if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies that have more than one reader, and you can get a discount that way. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on this podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Now, please join me and Fred Applebaum on the long run. Physician, scientist, administrator, and now author of Living Medicine, Fred Applebaum, welcome to the long run. Thank you for having me, Luke. So, Fred, I thought it would be good to start with the first sentence of your book. You say, even though I've been doing it for decades, every time I perform a bone marrow transplant, it seems like magic. 
Wow, that really grabbed me when reading the first draft. Um, so can you elaborate on that, what you just said there? Maybe start by saying, what, what is a bone marrow transplant for those who maybe aren't super familiar? And why do you get that feeling? Well, as you know, Luke, um, the blood system uh, arises in the bone marrow. Uh, there's cells that are defined as stem cells that are responsible for eventually making all of our red cells, our white cells, our platelets, uh, and forming our entire immune system. And the concept of bone marrow transplantation is that if you have an abnormal bone marrow, either because it's failing to produce normal cells like in aplastic anemia, or produces abnormal red cells like in sickle cell anemia, or it's malignant like in leukemia, the concept is that you could wipe out this abnormal bone marrow and replace it with a normal one uh, from a normal donor. What Don Thomas showed uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, that it was actually possible to treat a patient by giving them very high doses of chemotherapy or radiation therapy, wiping out their bone marrow, taking bone marrow cells from a normal donor, infusing them intravenously, and this is where the magic is, that these stem cells, you just infuse them intravenously and somehow they find their way to the bone marrow, they repopulate the bone marrow and they start growing in this new host informing normal red cells, white cells and platelets in a regulated manner. That that works is just, I mean, it's a miracle. These are cures. These are cures. These are cures of people that have otherwise fatal illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up just a little bit. You mentioned Don Thomas. Um, he's the protagonist of this story uh, of yours. Who was Don Thomas? So Don was a, a guy that uh, grew up dirt poor in Texas. Uh, his, his dad was a solo practitioner, but back then that didn't make a lot of money. Um, but Don uh, was entranced with what his dad did and always wanted to become a physician. Um, he didn't have enough money to go to medical school, and so he started working as, uh, after graduating from college uh, as a uh, Post as a, as working for his PhD. But then uh, because of World War II, there was this acute shortage of physicians and suddenly we needed more physicians to be trained because so many docs were going into the army. Um, and so they started providing scholarships where he could get into uh, medical school and he eventually got into Harvard and graduated uh, from Harvard. After uh, he graduated from medical school, um, he had this idea about marrow transplantation from reading a few early papers, uh, and that's what he pursued, this incredibly novel idea of the possibility of developing marrow transplantation as a cure. Now, of course, we think of him today as the pioneer of bone marrow transplantation. Um, there were a lot of steps that had to be taken along the way for, for him to achieve that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, um, the essential preconditions that were in place or some of the early work that Don looked at and that informed his thinking and, and led him down this path? So um, much of it actually came from the number of deaths from the atomic bomb blasts in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, when those bombs exploded, um, there were totally about 200,000 people that were killed. Um, about 80% of them were killed because of the percussion and heat of the blasts. But another 20% or so 
died uh, delayed deaths, uh, and they died because of radiation toxicity. The radiation from the bomb uh, had destroyed their bone marrow, uh, and so they died with aplasia. Uh, that is no red cells or white cells or platelets. So weeks to months after the, uh, the bombing, they died with bleeding and um, infections. After the war, uh, a number of uh, people were doing investigations into that, thinking this might not be the last atomic bomb that's dropped, uh, or there are certainly going to be potential um, you know, uh, disasters at uh, energy uh, performance when people are trying to develop uh, nuclear energy. And one of the key experiments was the so-called spleen shielding experiment, where mice were given radiation and they died with the same kind of aplasia that happened to the victims of the atomic bomb blast. But if their spleens were shielded or their bone marrow were shielded, the mice recovered. And then the next iteration of that experiment was to take bone marrow or spleen cells from a genetically identical mouse and infuse it into the radiated mouse. Instead of just shielding the spleen, they actually took cells from a normal mouse and infused them, and again, those mice recovered. Well, Don Thomas read those initial uh, experiments that were done in the early late 1940s, early 1950s, and he reasoned that if you could destroy a normal bone marrow and replace it, why couldn't you destroy an abnormal bone marrow and replace it? And that's when he started pursuing this idea of marrow transplantation. Of course, genetically identical inbred mice are a lot different uh, from the outbred species that we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he thought, what if we could transplant marrow in people uh, f- for people with various leukemias, blood disorders? But this was not done. Um, what, what were some of the obstacles that he was up against, the, the, the doubts Well, remember, Luke, in the 1950s, when he was first thinking about this, uh, we didn't know anything about HLA. The the three letters HLA were never, uh, you know, given in that order uh, at the time. Um, The idea of histocompatibility uh, and how to do that between humans was totally unknown. In fact, matching. Yeah, matching. I mean, for thousands of years, literally thousands of years, people had thought about transplanting body parts. You know, could you give new nose or new skin or a new ear to someone? And it would never work. Those those tissues would always get rejected. And so when Don first was thinking about this, um, there was universal skepticism. You know, it was thought to be like gravity. You know, you couldn't transplant tissue between non-identical twins. It was just against the law of nature. Um, but Don... There were a couple experiments that made Don think that maybe that wasn't the case, that maybe you could uh, affect the immune system so that you could get uh, allogeneic uh, tissue to to engraft. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, when did you first become aware of this work? Was this the early 70s? Yeah, so I was a a sophomore in medical school in 1970, um, and there was a a, a wonderful – teacher there, Dr. Jane DeForge, who was one of the early, uh, really wonderful hematologists. Uh, and she was, uh, just serendipitously, I was assigned her as my clinical mentor. And so during the second year uh, medical school, she would take us, a group of us around and uh, teach us how to do a physical examination and how to, to you know, work up a patient. And then she would take us around the wards. And so we could see different signs of diseases and, you know, there'd be a patient there who had, um, 
you know, they could have uh, jaundice and, you know, you could see the yellow eyes or uh, would have, um, you know, ascites. And so you'd palpate their, their belly. And one of the patients that she was taking us around to had leukemia. Uh, and we were learning how to palpate the, an enlarged spleen. And when she was teaching us this, uh, she happened to mention that she, there was this article that had just been published in 1970 by Don Thomas about the possibility of bone marrow transplantation. Now, the patient didn't survive that, but it showed that the marrow at least could engraft. And I just thought that was so amazing uh, that that afternoon after she told us about that, I went to the library and was reading through different journals and read that article. And I don't know why, Luke, but it was like, it was like having my brain tattooed. I, I just said, wow, that is amazing. Uh, and that idea never left me. So did you Call him, meet him. What what happened next? Oh well, I was only a sophomore in medical school. I don't think Don, I don't think Don Thomas was going to talk to me at that time. Uh, so I finished medical school um, and then did uh, did internship uh, and, and residency. But when I was um, in my last year of medical school, I learned about the uh, the National Cancer Institute and the potential for doing a fellowship there. Uh, and that was very entrancing for a number of reasons. Number one, it was one of the few places that really had um, fellows uh, fellowships for people in training to be oncologists. It wasn't a, a field back then or just beginning to be a field. Uh, and, and secondly, it actually satisfied your military requirement uh, if you were in the public health service. So it was a pretty nice uh, uh, position to get. Vietnam War era. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. The so-called Yellow Berets, uh, as, you, as you know. Yes. Um, and so I, I I applied, and uh, luckily I was accepted in a position there. And um, when I finished my uh, internship and residency, I went to the NCI and uh, was uh, interested in doing work in transplantation biology. Um, and so when I was there, uh, I actually got involved in a lab, some laboratory work, uh, which um, Don Thomas um, happened to notice and one day called me up and asked if I was interested in coming out to Seattle and working with him. So Don had moved to Seattle. What year was this? So Don uh, started his work uh, in, in thinking about the idea of doing transplants uh, when he was still uh, at uh, Harvard. Um, but uh, they didn't have much interest in that. And in fact, Don was looking for space to try and do some initial work in the mid-1950s, and space was not forthcoming. Uh, and so he moved— Space is in lab space. Space is in lab space, and the possibility of doing any kind of experiment. Now, was there, there active opposition to this idea that this was just— crazy wild west medicine so many because so many things could potentially go wrong absolutely so actually the guy that was don's boss at the time was sydney farber who was you know become who was famous for having developed the first uh, chemotherapy for leukemia but after he did that kind of work Farber got very conservative, and at least according to the people that I interviewed, um, wanted nothing to do with Don's uh, idea, saying that it was just it was just crazy, uh, and he wasn't going to be part of it. And he was not going to give Don Thomas any space to pursue his laboratory uh, ideas. So that was in 1955, uh, and um, with space not uh, forthcoming, Don decided that he was. Um, going to do those experiments no matter what. And so he moved to uh, Cooperstown, uh, New York, to work uh, there at the, um, at the the Imogene Bassett Hospital. Uh, now, the reason he moved to Cooperstown was that there was someone he had already met 
uh, at Harvard by the name of Joe Farabee. Uh, and Farabee ha also had this idea that marrow, maybe marrow transplantation would be possible. And uh, Thomas and Farabee hit it off. And so he moved to Cooperstown and started his first experiments then in 1956. There were fewer naysayers around. Uh, I think the mass, vast majority of people would have said, this is crazy. But they weren't entirely off base or wrong to think such a thing. I mean, after all, the Hippocratic Oath says, first do no harm. And there was plenty of potential for harm, and sometimes there actually was. Yeah, but uh, doing nothing in a fatal disease uh, can also be harmful. Uh, and so there's a, you know, there's a... A balance there, uh, as, as I mentioned in my book, there, you know, Hippocrates said, first do no harm, but uh, Shakespeare, you know, wrote, uh, diseases desperate are by desperate appliance cured or not at all. And so, you know, it, it, that's a hard balance. Don sided more with the Shakespeare <laughs> uh, saying. <laughs> no question about that, Luke. Okay, so um, years go by. He, what, what were some of the main. Um, achievements or, or glimmers of success in those early years, maybe in the animal models or some of the early, early clinical work that gave him the confidence to keep going, that maybe he was onto something? So uh, he first tried to do marrow transplants in humans in 19, around 1956. Uh, and he treated six patients who were, it, you know, they were absolutely a death store. And really the only question he wanted to know is, could you give bone marrow intravenously? Um, or if you took bone marrow out and gave it intravenously, would it all just get clogged up in the lungs? Because that's the first place the, the, these, these cells are gonna go. And could they possibly get a graft? Well, that, that experiment failed miserably. I mean, none of the patients survived. They all died fairly quickly. You could give the bone marrow intravenously without acute toxicity, so he did show that. And there was possibly temporary engraftment in one of the six patients, but it was really minimal, uh, hardly at all. And so Don realized he had to go back uh, to the animal model, that this was really going to be a very, very difficult problem to try and solve. Um, and so he started working, and he used canine model, he used dogs, because unlike inbred mice, dogs are outbred, uh, and they come in litters, which are like, you know, like, like families, and so you could possibly figure out how to pick a, a donor which might be compatible. Um, he, uh, but he kept working in humans as well, but really, um, pretty much focused his work on patients who had identical twins. And in the late 1950s, uh, around 1958, um, he transplanted a, a couple young children who had really overt leukemia right at the end stage of their life, who happened to have identical twins. And he treated them with high doses of radiation and then an infusion of bone marrow from their identical twins. And the patients did get temporary engraftment. The leukemia went away. Um, they recovered their counts. The radiation doses, nobody would have expected anyone to recover from those radiation doses without the bone marrow support. He'd already shown that in animal models. Very high-dose radiation, which whacked the cancer. Absolutely. Leaving not much left. And then you, in, you infuse the... Um, the marrow, and it engrafts, as you say, which means gets into the bones and begins populating all those red blood cells, those white blood cells, the immune cells, everything you need for life. Exactly. 
And that was, now the leukemia came back and it came back fairly quickly because there was so much leukemia when these young kids were being treated. But the fact that the leukemia went away, there was a temporary remission and the new bone marrow from the normal twin engrafted was, uh, you know, it was a major step forward and it was very encouraging for, for Don. But they still failed when they tried it between individuals who did not have Matt did not have identical twins because they didn't know how to select. Uh, there was again, there was no knowledge about HLA at that time. Um, then uh, about two years later, he was actually the guy that he was his fellowship uh, instructor in um, in Boston was a guy by the name of Clem Finch who was a. a became quite well known as uh, one of the hematology leaders in iron metabolism. Clem had left uh, had left uh, Boston, had moved to Seattle. And so Don, he invited Don out in 1960 to give a talk in Seattle. Um, and Don uh, came uh, to give the talk. And he was talking about, you know, transplantation just wasn't working. Uh, you know, you get, you get brief remissions in some of these kids that had end-stage leukemia and identical twins. And if you tried it in people did, who didn't have identical twins, the graft would get rejected or they would cause something called graft-versus-host disease. As he's finishing his talk, um, a young fellow comes running up and says, I think I have the identical patient for you. And Don says, what? And he says, well, I have a six-year-old girl who has aplastic anemia uh, and she's dying of aplastic anemia. Now, aplastic anemia is a disease where the bone marrow just fails. There's not a malignant cell to get rid of. The bone marrow just fails. Uh, but she also had an identical twin. And so Don raises his eyebrows. And now it was a different era then. So Don's a visitor. He doesn't have a medical license <laughs> to practice medicine in the state of Washington. He certainly doesn't have hospital privileges. But um, he and uh, uh, this uh, fellow take the, I, the normal identical twin into the operating room, remove bone marrow, infuse it into the patient, Nancy Lowry, uh, and two weeks later, Nancy's counts are recovering, and two months later, she's back in school, um, can't tell her from her normal identical twin. That was in 1960, 63 years ago, and Nancy Lowry is still alive and well uh, wow. now, uh, living nearby. Uh, and um, her uh, identical twin, the normal donor, is also fine. So she was the first person ever cured with a bone marrow transplant uh, on the face of the earth. And that was a single infusion. Single infusion of bone marrow from a normal donor into an identical twin whose marrow had failed. Now, was that recognized at the time as a medical breakthrough and something that ought to be followed through in a thousand different ways? It was recognized by some people, um, and so individuals started trying transplants. Other people beside Don started trying transplants, um, but without knowledge of how to pick a donor, except in the very, very rare circumstance of aplastic anemia with an identical twin, uh, the everyone failed. And it's estimated that there were maybe 160 to 170 transplants performed between 1960 and 1966. Every one of those patients died. Wow! Um, and um, everyone, almost everyone, was leaving the field because they just didn't know how to make it work. Now, this makes me wonder about Don as a character. Like, what, what is it about this person that allows him to keep going? 
Now, he had a glimmer of success, a little bit of validation against a whole lot of failure. Yeah. You knew him. I mean, how? what was it about his makeup that allowed him to persist? He... Um <laughs> I don't know, Luke. I, I don't. I mean, he was—he was—he was incredibly focused. He—he uh, he believed that the benefit that could come from transplantation, if he could make it work, was so enormous. Uh, in his own words, uh, he said, "You know, uh, I feel like I owe it to our patients to try and make this work." Uh, and he said, "You know, that if he ever got to a real dead end, he would have probably found something else to do." But he never got to. A real dead end. There was always another experiment to perform, another avenue to pursue, another thing to try. And along the way, he was making progress in the animal model. While there was all this failure in humans, and by the way, most of that was other people trying it without knowledge of how to do histocompatibility typing. Don really had given up most of his clinical attempts, except in identical twins, while he was working in the animal model. In 19, around the uh, mid, early to mid-1960s, around 1962 or three, he started finding out that if he did transplants between um, canine litter mates and he gave a, the right dose of radiation and then an infusion from a litter mate and then afterwards gave some immune suppression, that while most of the dogs either rejected their graft or developed something called graft-versus-host disease where the new immune system reacted against the host, that those animals would die. But there was maybe one out of four, one out of five of these dogs that would actually engraft and go on to be long-term healthy chimeras uh, with two to three years later um, being tolerant of donor skin grafts uh, and showing that their marrow was clearly from the donor. Now, the challenge then was how do you select which is the right, the right donor recipient pairs? But the progress he, he made showing that sometimes it worked, was the kind of thing that kept him going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And immunology as a science was still very much in its infancy, this idea of histocompatibility, a whole lot needed to be worked out and, and was, and then was incorporated by, by people practicing in the clinic. Yeah, yeah. So during that, the early 60s, that's when the idea of histocompatibility really was not just done. There was, there was a whole bevy of individuals who were making some progress there, um, starting with Dossay and Snell and others. And so Don was reading that and seeing that this was progressing so that he got to the point uh, by the late 1960s where he could develop typing like HLA typing, but in dogs, so that he could then get to the point where he could reliably identify the right donor-recipient pair. And once he got to that stage, where he could find donor-recipient dogs, the right dose of radiation to prepare them for the transplant, the infusion of the bone marrow from the right donor in the right amount of immune suppression afterwards, and every one of the dogs then turned out to be a long-term survivor, then Don felt he was really ready to go back into the clinic and start treating patients. And that's when he did that uh, experiment in 1970, which is the paper that I read that really uh, got me going on it and was sort of the beginning of the allogeneic era. 
So a whole lot of science is going on. Well, in the back of his mind, he knew all about Nancy Lowry and the potential here. Keep his eye on the prize, work out some of these, um, work through some of these obstacles of, exactly. of the immune system. Uh, so he kept at it. Came out to Seattle. When was this? So he moved out in Seattle in 1965. Uh, and was completing the canine work. And there were several people that were working with him, Bob Epstein and Reiner Storb, who were, were really key to some of that early canine work. Uh, but then uh, in about 1969, he wrote the first grant to start doing the transplants in humans uh, and opened the clinic, which was at the public health hospital, the what is now the Pacific Tower. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timberman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies who have more than one reader. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on this podcast or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Now, without going into full Chamber of Commerce mode, which I think you and I could probably both do, uh, was there something about the environment, the time and place of being in Seattle, you know, as you know, not Harvard, <laughs> um, something about the willingness to try new things, maybe, or um, just fewer people around to object, um, but with a culture of scientific excellence, what was it about this place that 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 milieu that he was able to operate within. So Don was given space in the uh, the Pacific Tower, the public health hospital then, and it was Don knew how sick uh, his patients were and were going to become. Now, these are patients who have end-stage leukemia. Uh, so they are on death's door before they start treatment. Then you have to give them very intensive radiation therapy. Uh, they're going to get even sicker. And so if Don was going to do this experiment, he felt that he had to be able to control every aspect of those patients' care. And I mean every aspect from the custodians who were cleaning the unit to the dietitians who were preparing their food. And so he created his own small little hospitals, own little department of medicine. A fiefdom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can say that, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, everyone at, in that little, that little world worked for Don for that one purpose of trying to make marrow transplantation work. You weren't sitting in the middle of a big hospital where you had other, uh, you know, uh, conflicting um, goals. Everything Don was doing there was to make transplantation work. And so he really did hire his own nurses, his own dietitian, his own uh, social worker, uh, his own pharmacologist, and his own his own docs to, to work for him. And there was just something about Don that um, it, there was, you know, you talk about teamwork uh, in, in baseball or, or in basketball where everyone is working 
well together and the whole is much bigger than the sum of the parts. And Don was a great team leader. Um, he had a just a, a personality that people that came, they wanted to work with him. They wanted to see if they could contribute to make this work. And Don was incredibly generous. Uh, whenever he would give a talk, he would always credit all the other people who were, um, were, were contributing. How long did it take before this went, I guess you could say, mainstream? So Don's first two years, uh, well, the first 18 patients in a row died. So it, it took, again, uh, that kind of um, perseverance. But then there were a couple survivors uh, within the second year. Um, in 1974, the transplant group uh, had done over 120 transplants and published a, an article, a two-part article in the New England Journal that really introduced the concept of marrow transplantation, I think, to the rest of the medical community. Um, among the aplastic anemia patients, not twins, but these are getting transplants from uh, donors, match, match sibling donors, the cure rates were now over 50%, which was very encouraging, given that otherwise it was a death sentence at the time. Among leukemia, these are end-stage leukemia patients, the cure rates were low. They were in the 15% to 20% range, but they were cures. These were people now that were four or five years out. Otherwise, they would have been dead within a month or two. And so by 1975, there was some growing um, encouragement that this was a, a real therapy. Once you showed that, once Don showed that you could cure patients who had end-stage leukemia, then the, uh, the process was to take it earlier in the course of disease, you know, in, in second remission or first remission. At the time for AML, which is the disease that I spent most of my career pursuing, chemotherapy worked, but only worked, uh, you know, 15% of the time. Don could show that end-stage leukemia patients could be cured maybe 10 to 15% of the time. So the question was, if you took these patients who were in first remission and transplanted them, could you increase the cure rates? Now, it was a gamble because transplantation at the time still was incredibly brutal. Um, there was probably a 30% chance that you would die of the procedure, not of the leukemia, of the procedure. Right. And so you're asking a patient who has maybe a, a one in eight chance of already being cured to, in, to take on a therapy which has a one in three chance of killing them and we don't know if we're going to improve on the one in eight cure rate. Hopefully we would, but we didn't know that. The odds aren't great. But the patients were willing to try because one in eight didn't sound great either. Mm -hmm. And of course, not every patient was willing to, to take the gamble, but um, a group did. And within the, with the first uh, 19 or so patients, the cure rates looked like they were going to be 50% or better, showing that it probably was a worthwhile gamble. And that's when transplantation, I think, at that point started to come into the mainstream. So by the mid to late 1970s, people were transplanting patients, starting to transplant patients in first remission for AML and starting to do it in other hematologic malignancies like CML uh, and ALL, et cetera. Practices improved on reducing the rate of rejection and graft versus host. There were a lot of parameters that you could have some control over to, um, to reduce those numbers and improve the overall odds. 
Absolutely. And one of the biggest ones actually was d development of methods to prevent infection. When we started doing transplants, um, there was about a 7% a fatality rate from pneumocystis. Uh, among the patients, about 50% of them had CMV within their body, like most of us do. Um, but of those, because they got so immune suppressed during the transplant, about half of them, 25% would develop CMV disease, and half of them would die of it. So we had 7% deaths from pneumocystis, 12% deaths from CMV. Uh, there was fungal disease that was causing lots of deaths. And so that was a major problem. But we, again, Don created his own little team of physicians and some of the heroes there were Joel Myers and others who developed methods to prevent CMV and prevent pneumocystis. And so it, it was many of the, the, the other related little steps that allowed transplantation to become better and better. So there's a story of incrementalism here. There, there's like the big idea, the central insight, and then there's a whole lot of grinding through <clears throat> incremental improvements. Absolutely, Luke. You know, um, uh, there's a great quote from Il Doctoro that I, I like a lot, where um, he says that it's like it's like driving at night uh, through the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you um, you sought to write a book about this uh, after living much of this story. You came out here in 1975, and a lot of this was, this is where the action was. Things were happening. You, you were a part of this. What, what compelled you to want to write a book about it? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, mostly I felt like I needed to write a, something that commemorated Don, uh, the, the, the team, the patients uh, that made it all happen. Um, if if nobody had written the story and it was just lost to history, I thought that would be just uh, just a tragedy. Uh, and so mostly it was to commemorate Don and and not Don himself. Certainly he's, he was a huge part of it, but all the other people that worked with him, uh, the nurses, the 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 nurses were unbelievable. Luke, you have I mean. We're talking about a group of individuals who were there at the patient's bedside. You know, as a physician, you go in and you talk to a patient and you examine them and you develop a, a close relationship to them. But it's nothing like the nurse who was there at the bedside, you know, eight hours a day with these, these patients, uh, nursing through these against horrendous odds. And just imagine that they're sticking this out when they know that eight out of 10 of their patients are going to die. Um, they're, they're, they're an amazing group of individuals. And many of them are still alive and, and you were able to go back and, and speak with, absolutely, interview them. Absolutely. I, I, we, when COVID hit and we needed people to come in and give the, uh, the shots to people that were getting the first vaccines, Almost all of them were our old transplant nurses who were retired that volunteered to come back in mm. and immunize uh, the staff and, and patients and faculty. I, th I th it was it was it was so great to see them. I mean, they're they're really very special people. That's pretty inspiring. It is. Now, the other thing that I and I know that I mean, no 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 book is going to have a, a measurable effect. I mean, it's a big world, right? But any little thing, I think that in this day and age 
we can do it. And Luke, you do it as well as anyone. Uh, anyone that contributes to increasing scientific literacy in this day and age, I think is doing, um, you know, doing what they can to, to help the world. Well, this is a story of medical history. It's also a biography, but it's more like, uh, you know, you have a central character who is guiding us through this uh, history-making event. And I think your title kind of sums it up, Living Medicine. You know, when most people think about medicine, they think about a tablet in a bottle or a liquid in a vial that you stick in the fridge, pull out of the fridge maybe, but this idea that cells, the fundamental unit of life, <laughs> can be coaxed, uh, engineered in such a way as to become the medicine itself. That's a whole different thing that Don Thomas was at the tip of the spear of. And, and now you can see it happening in all kinds of ways. So it, the, the, this informed your thinking, like there's a story here <laughs> to be told uh, that's important. Absolutely. Um, now, you know, I'm not uh, a CEO of a biotech company, um, and one could argue whether there's more future in small molecules or more future in cellular therapy. Certainly, it's going to be both. Uh, I think we, we would agree to that. Mm -hmm. um, but that was another – it was just – you know, if you look at what's – now, I'm prejudiced. I will – I'm biased. There's no question about that. Uh, but at least through the lens of the world that I see – when we look at the revolution that's happening now in three really different areas of medicine, you can draw a direct line from Don Thomas and transplantation. First, you know, there's, there's gene therapy of like sickle cell anemia and thalassemia, where instead of doing the transplant of bone marrow from a normal individual to a patient with sickle cell, um, what we're able – by the way, the first person ever cured of sickle cell anemia was a, was a young woman, Kimberlyn George, who happened to have leukemia but also had sickle cell disease. And in doing that transplant, she was cured of both. Um, the first person ever cured on the face of the earth of sickle cell. And now what we're thinking about is still it's marrow transplantation, but instead we're going to take the marrow out and we are repairing the gene defect and doing an autologous transplant. And someday we'll be able to, as you know, instead of taking the marrow out, we'll be able to just infuse the vector and cure the disease in vivo. But, but it, you could say that started with marrow transplantation. So the whole revolution in gene therapy, you know, you can trace back to what Don did. The whole revolution in adoptive T cell therapy, the new CAR T cells and TCRs, Don was the first to show that the human immune system could eradicate disseminated leukemia. He showed that the relapse rates after transplantation were far higher after identical twin transplants than they were after allogeneic transplants. And if you took the T cells out of the allogeneic marrow, the relapse rates went right back up 
to what they were with identical twins, showing that it was the T cells that were seeing the leukemia in the patient as foreign and rejecting it. Well, then we took the next step with uh, Phil Greenberg and Stan Riddell of finding out, could you find the cells in the donor that were seeing the leukemia as foreign and can you clone them and can you grow them to larger numbers? And now, instead of trying to take them out of the patient, we're taking them out of the, uh, take them out of the patient I'm sorry, out of the donor, we're taking them out of the patient and putting the receptors in. So the revolution in gene therapy, the revolution in cell therapy uh, as adoptive cell therapy for leukemia. And finally, you know, Don was the first person who ever transplanted any kind of stem cell. And now we're, you know that they were doing whether it be uh, islet cells for, for diabetes or muscle stem cells for muscular dystrophy. I mean, these three revolutions that are, are happening right now, you can draw a direct line from Don Thomas's pioneering work. This uh, whole other next generation of scientists and entrepreneurs looked at that work and wondered about what else might be possible. Um, and uh, whether it was Steve Rosenberg, Carl Jun, Phil Greenberg, all these people, um, they, uh, they saw what T-cells <laughs> could do. Uh, that they had this ability to hunt down the malignant cells and they have memory. <laughs> you can do like this in one infusion uh, and and with patients who are on death's door that come back and live. Uh, it, it was instructive and inspirational and they built on it. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that. I, I, I think that it certainly was a motivating factor for – each of these people are heroes in their own own regard, and I, I don't mean to diminish what they accomplished in any sense, but I think that Don was foundational for, for that developing. And, and the fact that these cells not just do their job, but they continue to live in the patient for the rest of their lives is just, um, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Um, back to this bit about writing the book. Um, writing a book is hard. <laughs> Um, how did you uh, get motivated to do this or inspired? Were there some authors you talked to or other books you read that that you yeah, found by, helpful? Uh, the, who's that guy that wrote the book Hood? I don't remember who that was. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was it. <laughs> I speak from experience. Writing book is hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it, this was this wasn't hard. I, I have to say, it was it was it was a consuming. But it wasn't hard. I mean, I loved doing the research bef before. It was that was probably so entertaining to um, to read through uh, some of the. Well, I did read a lot of other books uh, about immunology and you know trying. I thought I knew a lot about it, uh, but that was fun. Also, reading some of the original articles where. I thought I, you know, I've been doing transplants for 50 years. I thought I knew everything about it. And not only were the stuff that I, I didn't know in the history of immunology, which was really fun to read and instructive, but there were things I thought I knew that I, but I was wrong. Uh, you know, people had quoted an article, but they had quoted it wrong. And only when I went back and read the original article did I realize that people had been interpreting that data incorrectly. Uh, and that was really fascinating to go back. Having the opportunity to interview um, a lot of the people that were involved uh, from the early days, uh, I took a, a trip to see 
to Cooperstown to see where Don lived. That was a lot of fun and also got to visit the Hall of Fame, huh. which was not bad. <laughs> In fact, they- Nice I, side trip. Nice side. And, and they, I gave a lecture there, so they paid for it. It was even better. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so that was a, a lot of fun doing the, doing the research and reading a lot of Don's correspondence. Uh, I have, so you got to mine some of his private letters and, yeah. and so, documents. Uh, first of all, uh, the Hutch did a great job of archiving uh, a lot of Don's initial uh, early letters, uh, papers, interviews. Uh, and um, I have to also thank his three kids. They were wonderful uh, in, in helping with this. And some of the other members of the Hutchinson family gave me a lot of really amazing primary material, which was just a lot of fun. Uh, so there's a lot of primary research that you did and, and rereading of the, the literature at the time to synthesize um, you know, a new thing. But then there's also the matter of writing it in an accessible way for a variety of different audiences. Uh, um, you know, a lot of medical writing can be pretty dry and clinical and written for your peers. And I'm sure you've written lots of those peer-reviewed articles. How did you uh, practice writing in a in a way that, you know, as Sid Mukherjee says, sparkles? I mean, really, you really write in an a visual and evocative way that I think your average patient uh, or curious person browsing in a bookstore can read this and understand it and appreciate it. Well, thank you. I'm, I appreciate that you feel that way. Um, that does mean a lot to me that you, that you do. Um, two things. Uh, the first is that I've been practicing medicine uh, and particularly treatment of leukemia and transplantation for a, a lot of years. Uh, and uh, this is my own bias, but um, I have found, and again, I'm biased, I'm an anyone. <laughs> I found that one of the things that relieves patients' anxiety more than anything else is understanding what's going on. Uh, that um, you can't make the disease go away. And you can't make the therapy less toxic and less risky than it is. But if patients understand a little bit more about the disease, that it isn't something that they caused because they, you know, did something wrong, uh, and they understand why you're using certain drugs, and so they know that there's going to be toxicity, but why why isn't there a drug that, you know, why is there toxicity and can they understand that? That if they can understand what they're going through, it just is less anxiety provoking for them uh, and, and their family members. And so I've kind of practiced uh, explaining this to, to patients over the years. And I think that that helps. That helped me in how I explain things in the book about, you know, what is, uh, how does the immune system work and, and how can you possibly ever get tolerance? How, how's that even, even conceivable? And then, uh, you know, I did have uh, a number of people that uh, I read and enjoyed and gave me some advice. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, um, Jerry Groupman, uh, I talked with and uh, a couple others. And one of the things they said is, you know, it's a physician true. who writes for the New Yorker or used to. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, um, that you, your, your writing has to be cinematic to a certain extent. You know, you, you can, you can't just keep it a single plane. Dit, 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 dit. You have to sort of 
explain things, but then you have to have a scene, something that happens. And then you can go ahead and explain a little bit more, but then you need another scene. Now, one of the things that I struggled with a little bit um, is how to continue to put in enough scientific explanation along the way that the reader wouldn't get lost. And so at some point, I had to sort of stop a little bit and explain just the basics of hematopoiesis, how does blood form. Mm-hmm. Then I could go a little bit further. Then I had to explain a little bit about histocompatibility and what was done up against. Then you know, go a little bit further, and then you could explain a little bit more about how the immune system works and how it can possibly attack leukemia. So you have to intersperse the narrative uh, with some, a certain exposition uh, and then you know a few scenes and keep doing that. And There's some science, but it's not a textbook. And in between, you've got characters yeah. like Don and his wife, Dottie, and their yeah. dogs. And yeah, they like exactly. to go hunting in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. And yeah. these are characters yeah. that from Texas people yeah. can relate to. Yeah. And, and that's what I, that's, you know, I have to say that uh, writing the book was one of the most all-consuming things. You know, I would wake up thinking about it. I would, you know, be doing it in the day, during the afternoon, in the evening. And when I was exercising, you know, I'd be thinking about how to organize it. And it was the last thing I was thinking about as I was falling asleep at night. It just, it was very consuming. Uh, I'm sure you've gone through that. Yeah. Yeah. Very immersive process. Uh, Okay. So the book's been out for a little while, a couple months. Uh, What sort of feedback have you gotten from various types of readers? Well, uh, I'm not sure I would have heard if people didn't like it. I don't think they would have called me up and said that. <laughs> but you know, people have uh, generally been really, really positive, uh, including uh, colleagues which uh, are in the transplant field. Uh, they, you know, a lot of them have called me up and wanted signed copies and wanted me sign multiple copies for them, which is really nice that they uh, that they they have enjoyed it. And then some of the I've gotten some very nice comments from. Patients that uh, uh, I've actually treated decades ago that you know thanked me for doing it and wanted to sign copies. So it's been it's been very nice, uh, been very gratifying. And the uh, reviews from the that are out there uh, from uh, in the ASCO Post and the Cancer Letter have been also pretty pretty positive. You think you'll write another book? I might, uh, but you know, it'd have to be the right topic, Luke. I'd have to, have to feel as passionate about that one as I, I did about this one. But there are, there are stories. There are some amazing stories uh, that have come um, from the Hutch and from the world of science that I think people would benefit from knowing. Um, we're only going to make. I mean, we will make better headway uh, in the world of science and research if we have a more informed public that's willing to support it. None of this comes for free. You know, it's, it, we need public support. We need, uh, we need from, f- uh, we need funding from the NIH and from the NCI. Uh, we need philanthropy. Uh, we need, um, you know, it's not going to come from nowhere. And the more people that understand the process and understand what's, what's happened and what the potential is, I think the better off we'll be. So if I write another book, it's going to be, um, in that vein. Well, a book agent once told me uh, that when you're embarking on a project, you should start with a a few simple questions. Is there a story to be told here? Has it already been told? And if 
uh, and am I really singularly positioned to be the person to tell that story? And reading your book, I, I think, well, clearly you've been a participant uh, in this revolution, so you're very well positioned. There certainly is a story it hadn't been told before, and uh, I think it's really quite valuable for um, everybody, students, patients, people in this industry to learn about the beginnings of the cell therapy revolution. Well, I, I appreciate your feeling that way, Luke, uh, and hopefully others will as well. Fred Applebaum, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.